it is a joy to sing to one another about Jesus Christ. And a great reminder that we are forgiven by His shed blood, by His work on the cross. I'm going to have you turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to let you know that I am now, I am now prepared. I'm ready. These are NASA approved. You see that? It's kind of hard to see from there. Um, actually, Tristan gave these as a gift, and uh, I'm not probably going to look at it, so I'll, I'll, I'll let my children use those. One of the great themes of Revelation is the last book in our scriptures is readiness. So are you ready? A lot of people got ready for a single event tomorrow, didn't they? They, I actually heard, I don't know if it's accurate or not, that the, that the population of Wyoming is going to double. And I don't think that's a joke. I actually think it's going to double. And a huge event. And it's amazing how people go to great lengths to be ready for that one event. And yet the Bible anticipates not only the first great advent, but then the second advent, Jesus' second coming. And that's what Revelation is all about. Revelation is not supposed to simply satisfy our curiosity or launch us into 53 different interpretations of every single verse. It is about being ready. And are you ready for his return? Oh, that the world, because of Christ's church, because of our church, would be readying themselves for Christ's return. Because it is at his name that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a joy we have that we are in Christ. We are safe and we do so as believers. But others, others will confess that, but it will be too late. So in Revelation 1, I want to remind us who it is that is speaking to these churches. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists off the churches that we have, been walk, we have been walking through. Now, remember, John was with our Lord for about three and a half years on the earth. John went up to the mountain and saw the transfiguration and was overwhelmed by what he saw. John is the one now on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word. He is persevering in tribulation. This one who was familiar with Jesus Christ receives this vision. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice 
was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now look at John's response. The one who walked with Jesus, even saw Jesus transfigured. Look at his response in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So who is this? Who is the one that died? It's Jesus Christ. And it's not how you expected him to look. And when he actually walks amidst the churches and he gives messages to the churches, they're not the messages that we expect either. I mean, he comes along and there's a church that is that is just tenaciously orthodox. They had right teaching, but they they did not have love for one another. And Jesus says, that's not enough. It's not enough just to be doctrinally exact, because what did he teach us in John 13? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he calls on that church in Ephesus to repent to remember, to return. We're now at the final message to the seventh church. These are actual towns, actual cities, actual churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the description of the church at Laodicea is uncomfortably close to the situation that our country finds itself in. And I want to begin with a disturbing picture that is actually found in Revelation 3. And it's the picture of Jesus Christ standing at a door and that's the picture. How is he on the outside? Why is he on the outside? How is it that he comes to this church and there's a barrier between them and he has to reinitiate, he has to re-pursue his church. How does that happen? That a church can be so removed from reflecting his glory and making a difference in their community that there he stands. That's the picture. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, offers four ways to identify idols in our own hearts. He says, you can identify an idol in your own heart by your imagination. What do you think about? What do you dwell on? What do you meditate on? William Temple once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he meant is when, when your heart has nowhere else to run and you actually are in that neutral mode, what are you dwelling on at that moment? Secondly, by your checkbook. We might even change that and just say, you know, our, our recent bank activity, since some of us don't even use a real checkbook anymore. But that reflects goals, convictions, priorities, relationships. As Keller says, most of us tend to overspend on clothing or on our children or on status symbols. Our patterns of spending reveal our idols. The third one is your functional savior. What do you look to that you actually think will bring you deliverance, rescue, or meaning or ultimate joy? 
What is that thing that you're, you're pursuing right now that you think will save you? Maybe not in the salvific sense of the gospel, but something that you think that if you just had that, you would have happiness. You would have contentment. You would love life. And then finally, your emotions. Emotions are an accurate indicator of where our idols are, what our priorities are, what our values are. Uh, sometimes when I'm discipling someone, I'll just say, what do you get angry at? Because you don't get angry at things that don't matter. Now, not all anger is sin. Jesus got angry. It was a righteous indignation, and it was a statement of displeasure. He was displeased that how the Jews had turned his father's house, which should have been a house of prayer, and he turned it into a refuge for, for robbers and thieves. Anger, bitterness, fear, doubt, despair, guilt. Emotions aren't wrong. They're good, and they're actually a healthy indicator to reveal truth about us. The church in Laodicea, why do I start with sort of a, an idol identification intro? Because the church in Laodicea is apathetic and self-sufficient and no longer recognizes her Savior. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write... Now, there are a few things about the location of this church that will help us understand the message that Christ speaks to them. First, the church was located in one of the most strategic and wealthy places in Asia Minor, in the Lycus Valley. Second, the city of Laodicea was one of three important cities. They were actually positioned right on a trade route that not only ran east to west, but also north to south. The two other key cities in that area are Hierapolis, which was six miles north, and they were, they were known for their hot springs. Okay, this, this is going to help us understand sort of what, he, what Jesus says a little later when he uses this idea of lukewarm. And then Colossae was ten miles east, and they were famous for their cold, fresh water. Third, the city of Laodicea was famous for three features, all referenced in the passage. First, they were a center of commerce and finance. Second, they were... Famous for their textile industry, they had sheep with black wool. And apparently it was very costly, and they were very proud of this fact. And I didn't read this anywhere, but apparently the disobedient children there were called the white sheep of the... That's not true. (laughs) But they were well known for their black wool, their black sheep. And it was a city famous for their eye salve called... Phrygian powder. So this city, Laodicea, had so many things going for it that made it prosperous and wealthy and self-sufficient. And what made the city self-sufficient and prosperous had leaked over into the church and just started to numb the church with apathetic self-sufficiency. We also have some biblical context for this church. This congregation is mentioned 40 times in a letter Paul wrote about 30 years before uh, the letter to Col- the, the, the church at Colossae. In Colossians 2, listen to the apostolic concern even 30 years before this church receives its message from Jesus Christ. Paul writes, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches. Notice to this very wealthy city, he's talking about Laodicea, and he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's the wealth that the Apostle Paul wanted the church at Laodicea to grow into, a knowledge of that wealth, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 4 of Colossians, it says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. There are, there are a group of believers there. There's a church there. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, which was most likely the letter uh, that we call Ephesians. It was a circular letter where it would go around to the different churches. Now notice next in verse 14, the character of Christ. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As we've noted in all these letters, the beginning of the church, uh, there's a designation. But then there are these certain characteristics of the exalted Christ that stand out and they are peculiar to each church. What does it mean, the words of the Amen? Some of you said that this morning. I said it a few times. You either said Amen or Amen. What do we mean by that? So when, when we sing, nothing but the blood, oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. And we say, Amen. What do we mean by that? We mean, we mean yes, let it be, right? It's, it's an affirmation of our heart. When we say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And we can say, Amen. So what does it mean then that Jesus Christ, the words of the Amen, the words of the truly, let it be. The only other place in the Bible where Amen is used as a name is in Isaiah 65, verses 16 to 17. Let me just read that to you. And I'll let you know where the word Amen is. If you, if you look at the, that, that Hebrew word there, it'll, it'll be in the Hebrew, uh, Amen. It says, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. That's amen. The God of the amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. The God of amen. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's Isaiah 65. And those ideas are now captured in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where he is the amen, the words of the amen, and the beginning of God's creation. Jesus used this term often, six times in Luke, 13 times in Mark, 31 times in Matthew, and then some of you will know, know it by his use of it in John. It's a double amen when he says, barely, barely, or truly, truly. And what he's doing, he's highlighting a particularly important truth. It doesn't mean that everything else he said was false, but he's saying he, it's like highlight, huge font. Okay, get this. And so as you track Jesus' teaching through John, he's going he's to use the double 
Amen. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So when Jesus appears to this church in Laodicea and he says that he is the amen or he is the words of the amen, it means what he says is truth, it is reliable, it will come to pass, you can count on it, it is sure. Then he calls himself the faithful and true witness. And that could be a connection of the words of the amen, that whatever God states on a matter is the right thing. Do you know that whatever God states on a matter about your life, about your habits, about your values, is the right thing? And you can try to build a detour around what he said. Okay, for instance, you can try to build a detour around what he said about premarital sex. But he is a faithful and true witness. His words are the amen. And his promises are true. When it says there is no salvation given under heaven in any other name that is in Jesus Christ, there, that means there is no other path. When he says he is the way, the truth, the life, no one goes unto the Father except through him. Amen. And you may not like that. And the world certainly does not like that. They do not like an exclusive message, but that is exactly what Jesus Christ preached. And he is a faithful witness to those. As our mediator, he bore witness to the truth. The word witness also is linked to the idea of martyrdom, to the persecution of being faithful. In that, Jesus died for our sins, as was already mentioned in Revelation 1. He is faithful. He perseveres. He continues to stand against evil and idolatry, even when it may cost him his life. And then he says this, the beginning of God's creation. So he's the authoritative source. It's similar again to what Colossians 1.15 talks about uh, when it describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And that means prominence or preeminence. It's a reference to rank. He is the king of kings, the beginning of God's creation. Now, remember what sidetracked the Laodiceans. Wealth. Affluence. Materialism. Here's what Jesus is reminding them. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. Okay, in John 1, 14, it's the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now listen to what it says. All things were made through him, through the word through the Son, through Christ. And without Him, not anything made was not anything made that was made. So the wealth that the Laodiceans enjoy, the strategic location that the Laodiceans enjoy, those beautiful sheep with black wool that they enjoy, who provided that for them? Christ did. And yet... They forgot about that. For us, I drove here in a Jeep Rubicon. I chose this jacket from about seven jackets. 
I go into my office, I've got book after book after book. How many copies of the Scriptures do I have at home and here? I have no concern that when I go home I'm going to eat well. Hopefully healthy too, but well. And then we live in this state and we have been blessed with technology and advancements and comforts. And we're surrounded by malls and we're surrounded by, I mean, you can get almost everything you not even need anything you desire in almost one stop. Refrigerated milk, 24 hours a day. You just drive there. And yet the church somehow has allowed those comforts, like the church at Laodicea, to forget God's blessings. And we become entitled. And we become selfish And we forget to glory in the most precious thing. And there he stands on the outside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So the condition of the church is exposed. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Let me just pause there real quick because there's been a a real sloppy translation of that. Even I heard as a, as a younger believer that Jesus either wants you hot for him or he just wants you totally cold for him. He doesn't want you anywhere in that wishy-washy middle. Folks, that makes no sense. That, that, Jesus came so that we might have life abundantly. He came to find worshipers because the Father is seeking worshipers. The idea that he's okay with us being cold is ridiculous. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, comments, Lukewarmness is not an ancient metaphor for indifference. The text, therefore, does not present a spectrum with two extremes, hot for Jesus and cold against Jesus. Rather, it presents two antithetical points, the first of which is illustrated with two images, hot water and cold water. Both of these are pleasing and beneficial, while lukewarm water is precisely the opposite, disgusting to taste. That's the picture. And if you, if you understand their location, the hot springs in Heropolis, which they're still known for in that part of Turkey, were beneficial and medicinal. And the cold water from Colossae was beneficial and, de- and, and desirable for a drink. But one of the weaknesses of the Laodicea was her lack of an independent water source. And so they had to create an aqueduct. They put it underground and they tried to bring the water from that the local cities and by the time it reached them it was lukewarm not only that it would it would be more what we would refer to as sulfur water with the heavy mineral deposits and so the picture here is when i go to get some refreshment it's tepid and it's got heavy mineral deposits and i want to vomit it out of my mouth what jesus was revealing was their spiritual condition was no better than their water supply. And he's trying to wake up an apathetic and self-sufficient church with this picture. So he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Very strong, strong statement. 
And the reason it's such a strong statement is because of their spiritual condition. Look at verse 17. For you say, here's the problem. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, we don't want to launch from this verse and simply endorse poverty or endorse a Christian kind of communism. Wealth is not wrong. Wealth introduces some real danger, but money is not wrong. The love of it is the root of all evil. So it's a matter of loves. Who do you love? And obviously the church at Laodicea loves who or what? Because now they're stepping back. Christ is on the outside and they're saying, we're rich on our own. We have prospered and we need nothing. And as Jesus looks at them as a church, he says, but this is the truth. And it's all about having the perspective of the exalted Christ of of Revelation 1. You don't even realize this, but as I look in, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. The Laodiceans had given themselves to an all-consuming pursuit of wealth, and that is idolatry. It's a self-sufficiency that blinds. Their actual state is described by five successive adjectives. Their general situation, wretched and pitiable, and their specific description, poor, blind, and naked. And it would take some time to walk through each of those statements and and what they're actually telling about this church at Laodicea. But Jesus sort of says that. He tells them. He exposes them for who they really are. And he doesn't just leave them with, with a critique. He gives them the solution. Look at the solution in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. Well, everybody, everybody's going to Laodicea to buy from them, Right? They had the banking and the commerce. They had this very rare black wool. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Do you see the grace? God's grace in these words. He looks at this church successful by, I mean, if, we're, if, we, were, if we were to line up all seven of these churches side by side and, and use the typical consumeristic grid, this would be the most successful church. And it's completely the opposite in Christ's eyes. And he says to them, he doesn't just leave them and rebuke them, but he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, really rich, rich in what matters. And white garments, possibly as a contrast to the black wool, but white garments is used elsewhere of this imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. See, when Jesus Christ clothes you, it removes the filth and the contamination and the sin. That's the Hebrew idea behind nakedness. It's not just exposure. It is contamination and filth and needing to be cleansed and covered So that your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He's speaking into all three things that this area in Laodicea was known for. And I love this. Look at verse 19. Because this can have a real edge on it, even the the text and the sermon. But 
but this ought to stand out, those whom I love. How did Christ, what was Christ's emotional response to this church? He loves them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's a church that needs to return to her Lord, that needs to come back. And God loves them. Isn't this what he says in Hebrews 12? That no, no correction for the pleasant seems joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been exercised by it. He also says in, in that chapter that whom the Lord loves, he what? He corrects. If, and if you're without correction, Scripture says, then you are, I mean, the King James Version uses a very startling word, then you are bastards and not sons. You're illegitimate. You don't know who your father is. So if you can sin and sin and sin and sin and get away with it, there's a good chance you need to say, is God the Father my father? Because he disciplines those whom he loves. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And that's why he's standing at the door. So be zealous and repent. He offers them true spiritual wealth. That's what Jesus said. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon this earth. Or use, utilize your wealth on this earth to bless others and be a blessing to others. He offers them true spiritual wealth, true spiritual purity. So it is possible to wear Armani suits and Dior dresses, to own luxury houses, to have the best of everything, but be pitiable and wretched. Isn't that sobering? In God's eyes, as He walks through this, they're disgraced, they're liable to judgment, but He wants to cover them up. And then true spiritual insight and understanding. And John 9 is the perfect parallel to this. Let me just read a portion out of that. This is the man born blind. And Jesus heals him. And then even the Pharisees, who in another portion said, who loved money. They didn't even believe it was the boy because of the miracle. They didn't want the miracle to happen in their town because of what it said about Jesus Christ. So then they found this other angle. Oh, it was on the Sabbath. And then they kick the blind man who has just received sight out of the synagogue. And Jesus finds out about that. And in verse 35 of John 9, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, if you can see the compassion again and the pursuit and the initiation. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Right, the purpose of the miracle. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Very obvious. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Right. Are, did you, are you going to come and give us spiritual healing too? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is at this church to offer true spiritual sight. So that they can see and he 
plays on this idea of this Phrygian powder, this eye salve. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Let me just read you real quick a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on repentance. Repentance means that you realize that you're a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God. That you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook, as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ, your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially. It makes no difference That is repentance. Passionately return, Jesus says. Now, to the verse that we all associate with this church. Look at verse 20. This is the way forward for the church at Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone. So the idea here is. He's, he's coming to them corporately as a church. This isn't just, you know, my tiny little individualism where he's at the door of my heart. But he's coming to this church, but then he says, he offers it to individuals. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, notice he does not force his way in. There'll be a time for that, too, later in the book of Revelation. But he doesn't kick the door in. He simply knocks. And if someone opens the door, I will come into him and look at the fellowship meal that follows and eat with him. And he with me. Notice the progression of this metaphor. Jesus arrives at the door as a visitor and he knocks. He identifies himself and he seeks admission. But the person must respond. Who is this for? It's not necessarily an evangelistic call as is apparent from verse 19. He loves them. He's reproving them as his children, as his church. So be zealous and repent. But it's an invitation for renewed fellowship. It's exactly what the the letter that would have been located and probably read there in Laodicea says in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what is our response to that? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You cannot habitually share in those evil practices at the same time and at the same time share a meal with Christ. 2 Corinthians 6 says, what fellowship has light with darkness? So because of their lifestyle choices and their patterns of life, he's on the outside and he's knocking. Will anyone answer the door? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I will dine with him. I'll share a meal with him and he with me. And then look at verse 21. Here's the promise. Here's the exhortation to persevere. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Therefore, set your affections on things above. That's where they should have been living all along. 
And then again, the call to listen. Verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Are you listening? That's just a different way of saying verse 22. Are you listening? Okay, then I'm at the door. Are you listening? And if anyone hears me and lets me in, I will fellowship with him. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. J.H. Jowett said, the real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if we lost all our money. So are we treasuring Christ? Even as Steve said earlier, there is a, you find a treasure in a field and you sell all to purchase that field because of its great wealth. Are you treasuring Christ? Are we treasuring Christ as a church? Is it really the things of God that we value and love do we love others that same way and are we leading others into an extravagant joy in Him? Let's pray.